Hey, and welcome to Deeper Than Data, the podcast where we get to know the scientists deeper than their science to find out they absolutely love science, like big time, and they are not afraid to share it with the world, all while making the world a better place for everyone. Or that they have a soft spot for bobcats, and they just have little nibbles here and there. It's probably not so bad for me, right? Maybe that's just me, your host, Ben Rush. Up top, we wanted to let you know that the Wisconsin Science Festival is approaching from October 21st to the 24th. For those of you outside of Wisconsin, you can even partake. Just check out the Fest link in the show notes. There are over 200 activities that you could be a part of, including a scavenger hunt, live remote talks, and you can even have your voice featured on this podcast. The Deeper Than Data media team will have a booth at the Science on the Square event from 5 to 9 p.m. on October 22nd on State Street in Madison, Wisconsin. You can pop by the booth to record how you are feeling about the fest, and you might even wind up on a future Deeper Than Data episode. In celebration of the fest, we will drop a bonus episode in this podcast feed next week from another podcast we make called Badger Talks Podcast. That episode will feature a conversation with the co-founders of the Wisconsin Science Festival, that will give you a story of the fest, past, present, and future. The fest is featuring many fungus experts, including today's guest, Christina Hull. Christina is a fungal biologist and pathologist and, well, really loves fungi and all things science. So let's get to the chat with Christina Hull. Christina, thanks for joining me on Deeper Than Data. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here with you. This is, this is cool. Happy to have you. Uh, this is not only a great additional episode, but we'll be able to talk about the Wisconsin Science Festival a bit and how you're active in that, which is also super exciting. And before we get to that, I want to get your names and the pronouns you use. My name is Christina Hull, and I go by Christina, the whole thing, and um, I do she, her, hers. Fantastic. And if people were to bump into you on the street, what might you look like today? Somebody's mom. Um, so, I, um, okay, average uh, white lady. So I am a 5'5", five, five middle-aged, late middle-aged woman, uh, blonde hair, blue eyes, and um, yeah, I think you couldn't describe me as anything other than white. You have yes. glasses. I have glasses. I blend in with the Wisconsin world really, really well. <laughs> so. yeah. Are there any identities you'd like to highlight about yourself? Um, I definitely think of myself as a scientist. I was reflecting on that. I'm like, I'm a scientist. That's just kind of who I am and what I do. Um, I am also a spouse and a mother and uh, elder caregiver and, you know, all of the other things that everybody, um, you know, faces in life. So yeah, all those things too. Ooh, but my favorite one recently has been 3D printer hobbyist. Hmm. Interesting. Christina, if I'm gathering anything from this, you are a human person. I think is what I'm, I'm hearing. I'm trying. I'm trying to be a human person. 
every day. That's what I'm shooting for. And lastly, before we jump into the open interview, uh, what are your positions and roles on UW-Madison's campus? So I'm a professor in the departments of biomolecular chemistry and medical microbiology and immunology. So I have a joint appointment in those departments in the medical school, uh, School of Medicine and Public Health. And um, my primary role is as a researcher. So I do biomedical research. Um, and my secondary role is as an educator. Uh, and I work primarily in the graduate education space. So educating PhD students in the biosciences and um, whatever else they ask me to do around here. I try to be helpful. If you're going to talk to friends and family members about that biomedical research that you do, how would you describe it in about two minutes? I study fungi that cause disease in people. So people um, get all kinds of infections and some of the organisms that cause those infections are fungi and people know about bacteria and they know about viruses, but they don't always know about these microscopic fungi. And, and the problem with them is they cause disease in usually immunocompromised people. So people with cancer, chemotherapy, people undergoing organ transplants, um, people with HIV AIDS, those are the folks that are susceptible to these invasive fungal infections. And we really don't have good drugs to treat those infections. And so the mortality rates are really high and people die. So we're really interested in how the fungi grow and how we can uh, understand them better so we can maybe prevent and at least treat disease. Yeah, and I was really excited to talk to you because you, you dive into some of those mechanisms of how fungi can do that. So I was thinking, with any sort of infection, it's kind of gross, but also really fascinating. You can't like help but stare. So I figured this conversation would be like that. It could be. It really could. Um, there are two aspects of it that always capture people's attention. Um, so I basically study fungal sex. Um, and so that you say that and now everybody's paying attention at least a little bit. Um, and you hope that funding agencies don't misconstrue what you're doing, right? So that you don't have somebody wondering why we're spending tax dollars on how fungi do it. Um, it, it turns out to be really important because their, their life cycles um, have an effect on how they can cause disease. The thing about fungal disease is we usually get these fungal things from the environment. So often it's out from the dirt, you breathe it in, you get sick. Um, that's a pretty common way uh, for people to get these. And the issue there becomes, I mean, you can't really get away from it. And so it's happening all the time and how these things develop out in the dirt really matters. And so then they get into you and they can make you sick. They don't, they don't need you. They don't care what you're, um, you know, they, it's not like they're carrying out their life cycle in you. That basically you're an accident. They ended up in your lung and it's a pretty good place to keep going. And so they're going to make you sick, but they're basically your food. So they don't. And so that's, it, so we had a parasitologist and a mycologist together. So a guy who studies parasites and a guy who studies fungi. And they used to teach a class together and they would compete for grossest picture. And everybody would thought that the parasitologist would win because parasites are just gross, right? And they, he never did. The, the mycologist won every time because the parasite needs you um, to complete its life cycle or do whatever. The fungus doesn't. 
And so you just, you just, it eats you. And so the fungus that we work on is called cryptococcus and it eats your brain primarily. Hmm. Well, transitioning from that to one of my favorite questions to dive back until you, how you got to that research with who was your first crush? My first crush. I was just a dorky kid. I, there was, uh, there would be no crushes. Thank you very much. I'm a very serious young child and um, there will be no crushes at all because that's frivolous. I had a crush on a boy in high school. So my first crush was a high school boy. Oh, actually it's this guy who, um, yeah, I had a crush on him and he took me to the homecoming dance or something. He, uh, he also got this like summer research grant in high school. So that's pretty cool. And when he was a junior and he was a year older than I was. And I remember saying, ah, cool. I'm going to apply for that when I'm, you know, when I, when I'm eligible. And his reaction was, well, it, you know, these things are they're really for very smart people. So don't be disappointed if you don't get it. Ouch. And then I went, I didn't have a crush on him anymore. <laughs> huh, yeah. I was just like, oh, okay, you really know. I, I don't like you anymore. So, yeah. Okay. Well, you and, proved him wrong. Well, absolutely, I did because I actually applied for that exact same thing and got it the next summer. And uh, yeah. my project was way cooler than his was. Yeah, I did way more with it. I don't even know where that guy is. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you have had like the science mindset for some time if you're already applying to those programs in high school. Were you and fungus, I think, is also interesting. And maybe you didn't start with fungus, but often kids are like plants, animals, kind of bacteria, viruses, maybe if you're lucky. And then people just forget about fungus, even though they're everywhere. So how did you start? Yeah, fungi are absolutely everywhere. No, I was not a fungal person. I was just a kid. I think I've mentioned this to people before. Uh, I think every kid is a scientist. And, and so I was just I was just doing the stuff that kids do. Um, I grew up in Montana on the eastern slopes of the Rockies in the capital city of Montana. Capital city. Help me out here. Capital, go to Capital Montana, Van. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. That's uh -oh. not awful what I just uh -oh. did to you. That, that was mean. Um, it's called Helena, Helena, Montana. So, Helena, Montana. It's okay. You're forgiven. There's like three people there. So, it's on the eastern slopes of the Rockies. And um, what about it? It's, it's a city it's of 45 or 50,000 people. And so, I grew up in the city. Um, and so, I was very urban. Uh, for the area and I lived at sort of the urban rural interface and all that meant was I would have spent my whole life outside uh, We were very outdoorsy people and so it, it was the whole kid thing where you were like, okay rocks critters Stuff and so I did experiments from a very early age Yeah, um, and so I think that just had everything to do with it because you've got a laboratory at your fingertips at all times yeah, and for the, the research program that you're doing in high school, it sounds like you had to actually pitch something specific. So, yeah. So, I, you know, I think the science stuff really, I knew I was going to, I wanted to be a scientist when I was in middle school. And, it, and my family, it's not like I was in a family of scientists. They just always encouraged me to do whatever I was doing. And so I was always the kid who was out playing. All the other kids were running around on top of the rocks, and I was the kid digging the stuff out from under the rock. That was me. Um, 
digging in the and in that you know fungi yeah there were fungi there but there were also mosses and like every day every time we would go out in the woods i'd come home with a moss collection um that may or may not have you know like a ton of insects in it that then lived in my bedroom yeah it, it was just that was constant and uh and i think that's just how kids are and so um, I just knew I really liked it. When I got to high school, I had a couple of high school teachers who were amazing, and that was huge. Uh, we were very fortunate to have a, a strong public school system um, at that time. And they, I just, I just knew that if it was science I wanted to apply for it and try. I didn't have to pitch anything. So it was a program, um, it was an American Cancer Society program. And I don't know if it even exists anymore. This was a little while ago. And uh, I applied to the program and got in and it was basically spending a summer in a research lab at the university. So I went down to Montana State University um, for the summer, lived in the dorm. So that was a really big deal as a high school junior. And um, I worked with a professor there, um, David Ward. And David Ward um, was one of the uh, scientists who helped redefine the tree of life. Um, and so he was doing a lot of research on thermophiles, so bacteria and um, related organisms that live in um, the hot springs in Yellowstone Park. So this turned out to be the coolest research project ever because we had to go into the park and we had to capture the organisms out of the out of the pools out of the hot springs um, and then we would take them back to the laboratory and extract their genetic material and analyze it and so as a high school student that was that was pretty cool so um, we had an off-trail pass which i had grown up going to yellowstone park um I, I just thought everybody did every summer you went to yellowstone park and you got to see all the cool stuff there and you got to learn more and it's just what you did so we did that. Um, so the idea that I could go there and have an off-trail pass was like that's the best thing that had ever happened to me up to that point. So yeah, the power, yeah. the power that you had, oh, the power to step off the boardwalk. Yeah, that's fun. I, I'm a similar person. I played in the mud, made my mud pits, turned over tons of rocks. And, you know, you saying like creating your terrariums, I was still doing that until my senior year of college where I tried to, my grandma had like the, the closed terrarium systems that could generate like their own weather patterns. I tried to do the same thing and have, it was a bad decision, but have my plants be uh, onions. And it did not turn out, like I did not do a great job. And so there was just rotting onions and slowly. Oh. The, the gases would seep out um, <laughs> into my bedroom. So Yeah, okay. And, and were their par parents involved at some point? Parents? No. This is this is me living like, independently. Oh, okay. So, um, yeah. All right. Well, that's okay because then they didn't come in and, and complain about the stench. Neither did uh, my girlfriend at the time, too. So maybe she was down with it. I'm not sure. I don't know. But she's no longer in the picture. So, um, I don't know. The onions may have been the end of it. It was the onions. It all makes sense now. <laughs> yeah, this is free therapy. Thank you, Christina. I uh, still have, I, I just got rid of the um, homemade terrarium that was in my office. So, so um, we, at one point I was in a building with the big giant um, flasks 
like round bottom flasks, like eight liters. So they're huge. They're huge. I don't know. They're this big. How big is that? They're a foot and a half across in circumference, in diameter, in that mathy thing um, that has to do with area and all those things. And I'm really going down a bad road there. Um, I took one because we're not using it for science anymore because it's too big. All the science we do is really little now. And so this was this great big vat thing. And I did a terrarium in there where I just took stuff out of my backyard <laughs> and stuck it in and I grew it up and all this stuff grew. It was amazing. And so I had that in my office for a very long time. I'm about to re resurrect it, but I, I highly recommend doing these things. And then I was thinking, oh, wouldn't it be cool if I had that and I could put some poison dart frogs in it? But then I learned that they're only poisonous if you feed them the right things. And then I didn't, I didn't care anymore. So, oh well. <laughs> <laughs> Just having the like regular harmless frogs wasn't enough. They had to be, they had to be poisonous. Um, I think it had to be, they had to be poisonous to really make the whole thing work. So I abandoned that. I might come back to it. Were you creating uh, terrariums or doing other sciencey stuff in your undergrad? No, I was too serious a student. It, there wasn't a lot of frivolity at that time, to be frank. I was very focused on school. I was very um, much focused on social justice issues. Um, and those were the things that were occupying my time. Yeah, at that time, I just... And I was doing research all the time. I was in a research lab and doing research and, you know, in, in college and then having summer opportunities in, you know, far flung places. So I had a summer at Cold Spring Harvard Laboratory um, where I got to do research there with um, Carol Greider, who ultimately went on to get the Nobel Prize uh, with Liz Blackburn for her work on telomeres, which are parts of chromosomes. It was just all amazing. And you know, it was early, early days, early years. We were just having a good time. So, so I got to do that. It was really cool. I'm, you know what I got to do there? You'll appreciate this. I got to sit down one afternoon with Barbara McClintock. So Barbara McClintock is a Nobel Prize winner. Um, one of the few women Nobel Prize winners. And she got her Nobel Prize for her work on transposable elements in corn and um, maize, so maize genetics. And um, it pretty much the way the lore goes is that everybody thought she was crazy and they couldn't understand what she was doing, essentially. Um, and so it was very much later that she got the Nobel Prize and she lived um, sort of a quiet, reclusive life in many ways, but she was in residence at Cold Spring Harbor. And that summer I was there as an undergraduate, I really wanted to meet this person. But I had to get up the nerve to call her on the telephone and ask if she would meet with me. And it took me all summer to meet all the way through. It was like second to last day. I'm about to fly away. And I was like, you know, if I don't do this, I will be incredibly sad for the rest of my life. And so I did it. I called her and she could barely hear me. She was in her early 90s, late 80s, early 90s at the time. Um, she invited me to her lab for a cup of tea and uh, I spent the afternoon with her and I got to just talk with her about science and doing science in her lifetime and it was absolutely amazing. So those kinds of opportunities coming along, I mean, if you can take advantage of them. And I like one of the reasons I started this too is I, I feel like I've had 
luck like that, being able to have this one-on-one conversation with a bunch of scientists. And not everyone feels comfortable doing that. And so sharing inside, I don't know if this would be inside baseball, inside politics of scientists, whatever this is. Um, I just, yeah, I feel super fortunate to have that and also the, the need to share. Yeah, I, and I was really, I was, I mean, I was a young woman in college. I was in a relationship um, with a man um, at the time uh, and was thinking about my future and my future as a scientist and, and how I wanted, what I wanted that to look like. And uh, the afternoon with Dr. McClintock was very interesting because I was, I asked her how she felt in terms of maybe being a role model for scientists and maybe a role model for women scientists. And she um, was very uncomfortable with that notion because she hadn't um, married or had children um, at a time when that is what women certainly were expected to do. And so she didn't like the idea of being seen as a role model. Um, And I thought that was very interesting because she thought it was too far, uh, basically outside the norm, off the, uh, you know, standard distribution of normal. She was not comfortable with that. And I, um, I don't know, I've reflected on that a lot over the years. Yeah, and I, I've thought too, um, you know, I have my my heroes. I'm, I'm a huge comedy fan and also really like science and the combination of both for sure. So I have my, my heroes and have just wondered, like, if I become that role, I don't like that. Like, I'm just, I'm an average person trying to do a normal life and maybe it's similar to what she was thinking. And like, I I have to use the bathroom like everyone else. I <laughs> sleep eight hours a night. Um, yeah, I'm not doing anything super special here. It was her path and she knew it was the right path for her, but didn't see that it would be the right path for others necessarily. Um, and I always thought that was really interesting and, and interesting to hear that perspective. And um, I always just figured, and maybe I took something from that. I'll just do what I need to do, which is kind of what I've been doing. And so here we are. Yeah. you And you mentioned doing some social justice work during your undergrad time. Was that tied to science by any means? I don't know. I think it's all related. I, I was going to say not really. No, I mean, it wasn't about my science at the time, Um, but everything kind of is. And so I was in a really interesting um, time where um, HIV AIDS, so this was the um, late 80s, um, and HIV was really, um, you know, the epidemic was peaking at its peak. It was just something that Um, was terrifying. And there was very little education about HIV AIDS or safe sex or other um, aspects of infectious disease and understanding and all of that um, going on at my university. And it really bothered me. Um, So I was a transfer student. I transferred from a small college to a big university. And the university had no... You couldn't get a condom on campus. Like it was not a place where people were talking about um, human sexuality, safety, disease. People weren't talking about difference, identity, any of those things. And it really bothered me. 
So um, I spend a lot of time working with the community center on campus to um, try and help have an education component um, about uh, HIV AIDS. Um, and I was also noticing very seriously that the farther I went along as a science major, the fewer women there were in my cohort. And so I'm um, really working to understand why that happened and was happening. I don't understand what it means to be a black person in America at all, <laughs> but, um, and I never will. Um, but I think that the introspection required um, of all of us, and especially in institutions, is um, the bar is high and we have an exclusionary culture, whether we like it or not. Um, and so, you know, the idea of being a racist culture full of non-racist people, <laughs> or at least not intentionally racist individuals, or even individuals who are trying really hard um, to diversify science, but not having the skills and, and the understanding to really know how to do it. And, um, and I, I think I've been waiting for this moment to some degree my whole career really flying under the radar screen, trying to persist in an environment that makes me very uncomfortable, um, seeing what I see, right? And the way the culture works and not feeling like I'm part of it and not feeling like it's appropriate um, for everyone because of the exclusionary aspects of it. Um, but deciding to persist in the environment anyway, and now having the chance to turn around and say, those are the behaviors that we're all buying into. And now it's sort of vindicating, recognizing those behaviors as what have made me so uncomfortable in many aspects of my professional life as truly exclusionary and very um, uh, white defining for science. Or academia and academia, um, um, so yeah. So I, I have always had an interest in sort of seeing what I can do with the information I have. Is that what scientists do? That's what scientists do, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Honored even more to have you on the podcast after you know hearing that. I just think it's part and parcel of being a member of your community. Edward, also imagine, like you were saying, it's not, it's hard to tease apart how things are and are not connected at some point, but it seems like that might be, you know, tied to the outreach efforts that you probably led in graduate school that you're doing now. And also, like you were saying, sometimes like the fungal infections are opportunistic. And so working and advocating for rights with uh, patients with HIV AIDS ties into that as well. Very much. And so, yeah, and so we happen to work on um, uh, this, the fungus that causes uh, fungal meningitis, so it causes brain disease, and the population in the world that suffers the most from this particular fungus uh, is the population in Sub-Saharan Africa that's HIV positive. So people with HIV AIDS, um, this is was a called a sentinel disease. So in the 80s, in particular, if um, someone showed up with cryptococcal meningitis, they probably had AIDS. And so um, there has been that intersection sort of all along. 
yeah, and thinking about that. Yeah, interesting that I ended up working on Cryptococcus ultimately. Did you start steering yourself to like specifically fungal infections within graduate school, or is that maybe more biochemistry, microbiology, and then a happy accident of fungus? Happy accident of fungus. Oh, that's awesome. Every fungus is a happy accident. Just so, just to be clear, no, they're just every fungus in the world is a happy little accident unless it's in your brain. Okay. But everywhere else, these things are, are just amazing. Um, no, I went to graduate school um, as an undergraduate. I did research uh, and I became really interested in how gene regulation and transcriptional networks control cellular fates. So how, why do cells do what they do? I worked on that project for a little while and uh, I don't know, it wasn't resonating with me as well as maybe it could have or I wasn't getting it or I don't know and I failed my prelim exams spectacularly and um and had to reassess a little bit and and really ask myself what is it why was I there <laughs> what what does I really want to do what did I really want to learn and uh what I figured out is that I was very interested in these interesting intersections basically in evolution so it wasn't just how to genes get turned on and off. It was how do genes um, have serve different functions over time? And so if you look in a fungal pathogen that can't do the stuff that this model bug does, but does other things, they're the same genes and proteins essentially in the two of them, but they're managed very differently. And that just really, that just really resonated with me as dorky as that sounds. Uh, so, you know, I was really into these two transcription factors and I was like, look, these transcription factors in, in the model yeast control sex, but in this pathogen over here, they don't have sex, but they still have these proteins and they're controlling something. And so basically I was able to figure out that actually they're still controlling sex. We just hadn't discovered it in that fungus yet. And so it turns out this fungus, it does do sex because lots of things on planet Earth do, and they didn't want to miss out. So these transcription factors are important over here. And that really got me thinking about sort of molecular biology of fungal pathogens. It seems like maybe you were a bit wandering in your educational path, but then you found like, oh, here's something that's like, I'm super passionate and interested in. Did things start to click like after you found that model? Yes. So, um, and it, absolutely. So I had been exploring things and trying to square peg round hole things a little bit. Um, and, um, you know, hitting bumps in the road really made me have to think about and decide why are you here? <laughs> what do you want out of this? And what are you going to do to get it? Um, and I decided I was there because I wanted to be a scientist. Um, I wanted to get a PhD because a PhD would give me the power to control my intellectual future and my fate. Um, and what I was going to do about it was really suck it up, buckle down and develop this question in the system. And, and it was what outside anything my thesis lab was doing. So I, you know, started out with a little tube of DNA and one little strain and I had to get a PhD out of that. And I did. And I had a lot of great support along the way. But it it really brought a lot of clarity. And I, I think a lot of people will experience something like that in their graduate careers. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking like, this is really nice for you to share. And I thank you for it because people will struggle. They might not attain their prelims or first uh, mile markers in graduate school. It doesn't mean they're bad scientists or anything like that. It's just might not be the right project. It might be assigned for something else. And that's totally fine. It doesn't feel good no matter what. Um, and then you figure it out. And and sometimes it, it isn't the right fit. And that's okay, too. And, and I, I think that if people don't feel um, penned in, um, they can really live their best selves and, and be what is it, whatever it is that they really need and want to be. So I, I feel really lucky that I had that opportunity because I, I had a lot of support through that. And that could have been a break point where it was like, nah, maybe this just isn't for you. Yeah. And no one said that. So, so that was good. And then at that point, I was like, okay, these people are crazy. They're just going to let me keep going. <laughs> They're just going to let me keep doing this. And then I was kind of like, all right, well, I guess I'll keep doing it until they fire me. So I'm going to keep doing science and I'm just going to keep doing this stuff until somebody fires me. Yeah. Okay. Here I am. Still here. So far, so good. <laughs> I'm hoping. Full professor. Uh-huh. So we'll see. I mean, somebody might catch on at some point, but so far, stayed under the radar screen. Well, I hate to tell you <laughs> why I invited you on here, Christina. <laughs> oh, no. Why'd you invite me on here? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really neat. I'm, I'm also curious, too, like, that would be seen as a large setback, not getting past prelims um, to some... Yeah, actually, I know, failed them twice. So I was, like, this go. far from getting kicked out of graduate school. I mean, I just... I muffed it up. I yeah. didn't know what I was doing. I didn't understand it. I didn't get it. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was close. Yeah. And I think it's so important to share because we oftentimes will cover up failures, which are usually big pivotal moments that change mm -hmm. our lives, hopefully for the better most time. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm curious, like in your career too, now that you are a full professor here at UW-Madison, did you ever have a moment, you know, you always had this desire to be in science, but did you ever consider liter uh, leaving it at some point? Leaving it? No. Um, leaving science. Yeah, see, I think because I have this belief that people are born scientists, I don't know that I could think that someone would walk away from science. I guess you could walk away from academia, you could walk away from aspects of the profession, but I don't know if I feel like I could ever walk away from something that I think has grown in me to be fundamental. I just, I don't think I could. I don't yeah. think I could. I would be doing something somehow. I mean, I can't get away from it on the weekends, right? So I, I go camping. It's me and my little handheld microscope looking at stuff. I mean, I can't, right? And so I upped my game slightly recently and I'm and I, I'm not sure how much I should even talk about it, um, but I have my my nice microscope that I have at home. So, okay, so that's the first thing. So then I have to say, okay, yes, I have a home microscope. So I've got my fancy microscopes here in the lab, but I also have a home microscope. It's a very nice little scope and you can look at all sorts of stuff and it's the best when you have little kids over and they're looking at stuff. You can, uh, it's awesome. That microscope, it turns out, fits very nicely into my trailer my my camper trailer 
and there's a little corner that it goes in. And it turns out that if you are looking at stuff, you can just go over to that little corner of the trailer and you can look at your samples that you got when you were out kayaking on the lake. So nice. I am just don't think there's a way out of it. Like I don't. Um, and so then I became friends with a little girl in the campsite next door because she was looking at something in the dirt. And then I showed her like the 200 species of, fu of fungi that were in our campsite. It had rained and it was amazing. And, and then like her dad was like, hey, crazy lady, what are you doing talking to my child? Um, and then I was like, okay, I'm gonna explain to this guy what I'm doing and this is not gonna help him feel better. <laughs> but this is my fear. I was like, I'm laying on the ground looking under this piece of wood for fungi. And I just was like, oh. I don't know. I, we need to get to a place where like that wouldn't freak him out. It freaked him out. It freaked him out. He was like, oh, you must be from Madison. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Little Lily, come back. Yeah. Yes, We've got here, s'mores sweetie. over here. <laughs> exactly. Get yeah. away from the, fu the funky lady with the, yeah, whatever she's doing. Yeah. Well, yeah, I also appreciate that way. retort. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm with you that the science is often a mindset and, you know, our quote unquote limitation of interviewing people here on this podcast is really just you think about something, test it out, modify and retest. And that is the scientific process. And it doesn't mean you have to have NIH USDA grants to do it. And I mean, if everyone cooks, cleans, or looking for the most efficient way to scrub a toilet, um, doing science. That is all science. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's, some of it's cooler than others. Cleaning the toilet doesn't go in my cool list of science to do. That's not your weekend science? Uh, that's not it. Nope, that's not it there at all. Um, and and I definitely like that there are federal dollars that can support um, other questions, like besides how best to scrub the toilet. I have a, a very random question for you. Do you ever wish you were a cyst? Spell that. I will... Spell it C-Y-S-T. Okay. Do I ever wish I were a cyst? Um, no, but why would I want to be, Ben? Why would I want to be a cyst? I'm thinking because they are pretty durable. Not quite indestructible, but they can last through a lot of different environmental changes. And, you know, sometimes perhaps in a global pandemic, it might be nice to hibernate. So I would just choose a different particle. I, I, I think uh, there are different kinds of cysts and I associate that cyst word a lot with parasites and their dormant particles. In the fungal world, we talk about spores. So spores, yes. Would I wanna be a spore? God, there are days I wanna be a spore. Yes, yes, I wanna crawl under my desk and be a spore, yes. And just weather the storm right there. Me and the, and the floor. And I always like to ask people who work on like a, a really microscopic scale, like, do you think seeing within, you know, we've had, so it's a little bit out of order for the listeners, but we, I just talked to Joe Handelsman yesterday about her soil science research. And she's mentioning, you know, soils, perhaps the most uh, diverse ecosystem that we have, um, which you would not be able to tell using human eyes. But I'm curious, like working within such a microscopic system and like level, 
has that changed your day-to-day activity or your, your, your thought process of like working with other people? You know, it requires one to think about uh, things that they can't see and they can't touch as being real. Um, and they, and knowing that they are real, so I can see them ultimately, and I have ways that I can see these things. Um, but then to convey that to someone who hasn't necessarily seen uh, with their own eyes under the microscope or seen the molecules or evidence of the molecules, um, I think that can be really challenging. Um, and maybe on two levels, one, to convey how cool that is and that this is happening and that it is real. And then two, um, that understanding that the person you're talking to doesn't have that same, that same interface, right? And so do they really believe there's a virus infecting humans and killing them? Um, and, and how to bridge that gap? Um, because it's a, it's a knowledge gap, it's an understanding gap, um, but we're working with the same invisible, visible, you know, concept. Um, and it's hard and some people are good at it and some people are not as good at it. And uh, we should start doing this a lot earlier in education. Yeah. Have you found any strategies to convince? I mean, showing people is helpful, but you definitely can't do that with everybody. I do have strategies. Um, one of my strategies is, um, and, and you might not gather this from our conversation, is to talk less and show more. Um, where instead of talking about things, um, having people do experiments in the lab, um, there's something about the action that I think helps to bring about um, the the more abstract understanding. Um, and so, and I, I don't understand it fully, but I've seen it over and over, that if people can just do the experiments we talk about them, they do them, we talk about them, they do them. Pretty soon, the doing starts to help solidify the thinking. Um, and, and that's something that's gonna be really hard to do out with the public. Um, so I think that's why things like the Wisconsin Science Festival are so important because people maybe don't get the opportunity always to do an experiment, although sometimes they do, which is really cool, the stuff you can do at the festival. Um, but it, it brings it closer to then being able to say, oh, and there are things that we can do at a microbial scale. You know, I'm doing this thing here that I can see, but there are things I can't see and, and learning how to, how to trust and understand that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious to, um, about your outreach efforts, because it seemed like they've, you know, you've been doing outreach outreach for quite a few years, at least based on your website. So I was I was wondering if that is really joyous for you to do, if you get into kind of a flow state of educating people. Seems like you're social. It seems like I'm social. I try to, I put on a good front. I try very hard not to be too weird. Um, but, I, you know, I don't always succeed at that. Um if you ask my daughter, I fail miserably at all times. So just, as long as we're all very clear on that. Um, 
What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm, I'm being weird. Mom, you're being weird. Okay. Do I like outreach? I love outreach. I think, and it all comes back to that, you know, silly premise that I was saying in the beginning that human beings are just born scientists and kids. There is nothing like a five-year-old to do science. I mean, that's, they just, that's all they want to do. Uh, if you can capture that, if you can get that, um, and tell them and show them what discovery is, they'll be hooked. I mean, that's that's really what it becomes, right? Is an addiction to discovery. I'm addicted. I love it. I like discovering things. I cannot imagine that you could design any better profession in the whole entire world than being paid to discover new things. Like. God. So outreach is exactly that. And so going into a classroom of kindergartners, um, it, and kindergartners are great because, you know, you go into the classroom and, and I have one activity I do with them that um, it uses, you know, Petri dishes with growth media and they can spit on it or touch it or whatever. And we're going to grow, grow microbes on it. And that's really cool. Um, but, you know, I talk with them and I ask some questions. So we talk a little bit the requisite talking that grown-ups always do that's super boring. Anyway, I ask some questions, but five-year-olds are super excited about it. And so you're like, okay, who wants to answer my, you know, here's my question. And then all the little hands in the room shoot up, right? And at, at four and five, everybody's into it. And, and you're like, okay, you. And, you know, and, and the little kid was like, I don't know. I just, I just really wanted to raise my hand. You know, like, he was just like, I don't, I don't, I don't have anything to say. I just really, everybody was raising their hands. So I want to raise my hand. They're just cute. Um, and they're, and, and how cool is that? And so I try and tell that to my college students. <laughs> if I ask a question in class, just raise your hand. And if you get called on, you can answer or not, but just, just raise your hand. Cause it, it's sitting around staring at each other. It's just boring. So yes, and awkward. And you're probably not gonna see your college classmates like again, ever in the future, really. I mean, yeah, we've all got a few friends from college, but. And we're all weird in our own ways. And so we're all weird. Share I mean, and admit it. I think so, but I, I worry about going out into public and saying, I'm weird, everybody's weird. Cause then all the other people are like, no, it's just you. Like that's, that's a thing I, I worry about only a tiny bit but yeah yeah so far i would say not that weird however Aww. with the caveat i might also be weird <laughs> yeah i know so this is then what starts to happen um yeah mom your friends are all weird too right yeah but i know that that's what every teenager says so i i don't take it personally well speaking of outreach and the wisconsin science festival what are your plans to do the outreach of the wisconsin science festival I get to do everything. I don't know yet. I haven't chosen. I've been given like a million choices for all the cool stuff I can do. Um, and I haven't even had a chance to go through all of my choices. I just, I just today saw the map of all the sites and all the cool things that are going to be happening. And um, I, I don't know which one I'm going to, I'm going to do everything I can do as a participant and as an outreach person in that span of time. Yes. And are you participating in the Friday or no participating in the science on the square that happens on Friday? Um, I'm going, I am, I have been invited to be in a booth. Um, but I, 
I feel like I might be sad if I'm stuck in the room. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know yet exactly uh, what it's I'm that doing. insatiable curiosity that you have. I guess. I guess. I mean, I might discover something. I don't want to miss out on something. Just somebody discovering something or watching somebody discover something. That is pretty cool too. You, if you want to come and uh, discover something, we'll have a booth. You can come by Ooh. and chit chat. Oh. We can meet. You can discover me in person with a mask. With a mask. We'll have some mics. Uh, chit chat about people exploring science and ha- maybe even have them be on a podcast about yeah uh, their excitement for science. It's not really like the science festival festival, which will have um, tons of cool stuff going on, but it's combined with like the night market. So it's, yeah. you can have everything you want. You could probably buy a hot dog <laughs> and then go learn about the hot dog right next door. Do you have a, a f- I know like you have your models, um, but do you have a favorite fungus? Well, of course, the one I work on is the most interesting one. Duh. Fair. Ben. Ben. Seriously. Uh, I had to choose amongst all the fungi. There's... 1.5 million-ish species of fungi. And when I started my laboratory, I had to choose one. So I chose the best one. I, I don't understand. I don't understand the question. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that'll just get edited out. All right, fair. Okay, sorry. No, that, I, no I, seriously. It is an amazing fungus. Like, it does amazing things. I mean, it's supposed to live out in the dirt. And then it interfaces with a host and does all of these things that... Um, it shouldn't really be able to do. And so uh, it is pretty cool. And I am, of course, particularly interested in spores. And so I've been practicing um, making my models, my 3D printed models. And I, I've, we did some electron microscopy and I was able to take the images and make a model that I then could put into a file to print on my 3D printer. And so now I can print spores. And it turns out if you print them in the right filament, they'll glow in the dark. So I have glow in the dark spores. And so this is great for outreach. So the instant you give someone a spore in their hand, they're like, well, actually, it goes, it goes like this. What's this? And I say, oh, it's a spore. It's a, it's a big model of, you know, this, what I study in my laboratory. And they're like, oh. And then I say, and it glows in the dark. And they go, oh. And then they hold it up to their eye and they hold their hands around it, right? And they make it dark so that they can see it it glow in the dark. And it turns out that every human I have ever handed a spore to has reacted when I say, they're like, oh, cool, a spore. And then I say, it glows in the dark. If they are five, if they are 102, if they're, you know, just a person on the street or a Nobel Prize winner, they take that spore and they cut their hands and they put it up to their eyeball. It's fascinating. And so I think there's a whole study in human behavior there. Yes. It makes me think, actually, it, I'm not sure if you could do it quite yet, but ice cube trays, if you could 3D print ice cube trays and then you have spore cubes. I'm so glad you asked this. That's such a good idea. In fact, it's pure genius. My last question for you before we go to our improvised game. I'm curious. Um, so I'm, I'm assuming that you bring this energy and fun spirit with you to many places that you go, including your lab and people you work with. How do you cultivate that and try to make other people interested and kind of 
energetic and fun collaborative way within your lab? Pretty much, I just figure that nobody takes me seriously. That that <laughs> kind of what I've come to, and that I'm okay with that. Like my colleagues don't take me seriously, Bill, and this is why. No, I I think that when we take ourselves too seriously, we miss we miss out. We lose sight of of what's important. Um, and I, I really do think that. And so um, I think it is really easy for scientists to get in their heads and get very um, serious and very hard on themselves and very dark. And it's, um, it's supposed to be joyous, right? Discovery is supposed to be joyful. And so it's also incredibly hard work. It takes tremendous effort. It really, really stinks um, a lot of the time. Um, you, you just really, you fail a lot. And so it's really about having um, enough energy to keep going. I work with just amazing, um, amazing researchers in my lab. Yeah. So I don't know. I hope my lab has fun doing science. You know, what are we shooting for? I don't know. I should sort of figure if I could get like on par a B minus out of everything. Like if life just ended up at kind of a B minus. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Given just how crummy things can get and how awesome things can be. Yeah. If you ended up at a B minus when it was all said and done. It's pretty good. I was kind of, I, actually, the first thing that popped into my head when you're talking about like B minus lifestyles, like pizza, even the stuff that isn't that great, <laughs> still not too bad. Oh, I hate and, pizza. <laughs> I don't like pizza. I know. I know. I just don't like pizza. I know. I'm supposed to. I was a graduate student. Oh. I'm supposed to like pizza. You're supposed to eat pizza. You're supposed to live on pizza. I just, I just have never really liked pizza. It's just one of those things. Anyway, I don't understand it, but I can appreciate how others do. There you go. This gives me pause. <sighs> I know. It calls into question everything I've said <laughs> up yes. to this point. So. Well, in the spirit of not taking ourselves too seriously, we're going to head on to our game. And I have a prompt for us. However, I need a few suggestions beforehand. So once I get our suggestions, I'll tell you what we're actually going to do. So I need four suggestions from you. I don't trust you. Okay. This is good because I don't trust you either. <laughs> the first thing I need from you is a fungal fuel source. Like, what do fungi like to eat? Sure. Glucose. And uh, next, your last Halloween costume. This is really good that this is a podcast and not visual. <clears throat> this is my spore coat. Those are spores, 3D printed spores. They glow in the dark, you know. And I made a spore coat because what I went as on Halloween was as a macrophage. I went as an immune cell. There. I was a macrophage covered in spores for Halloween. K 
Can I, do you feel like it would be a, a fair summary to say sport coat as a costume? Or would yes. you go, okay. Because I don't really care about the macrophage. Honest to God, I don't. I really care about the spores. <laughs> okay. Uh, my next thing is uh, a skill you are proud of. Pretty proud of 3D printing, I have to say. It's my new thing, so it's on front of mind. And a uh, last suggestion, a show that allows you to turn your brain off, whether it be TV, radio, podcast. What did I watch during COVID? Oh, like 52,000 hours of Netflix binging on. Oh, I know. I watched. Yeah, Supernatural on Netflix. There were like 10 seasons or something. I watched them all. You just need, you need that sometimes. Shh. I know. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. It's embarrassing. Okay. So much like Cryptococcus, we will be attempting to sneak into something, but we'll be attempting to sneak into a club for the cool people. We picked this club because it serves delicious uh, glucose mixed drinks. And somehow... Using the suggestions of a spore coat, 3D printing, and the show Supernatural, we have to sneak into the club. So you can imagine we are in the line. We are seeing people go in. Somehow they're not, I don't know why, somehow they're not allowing us in. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know why. Okay. We need those delicious glucose mixed drinks. And throughout this scene, we just have to incorporate your suggestions. And if it's easy, I can start things off. Man, Christina, I am so thirsty. I just really want those glucose McDrinks. That's all I can think about all today, all last week. I'm ready. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm sure if you put on your spore coat, that guy, the bouncer up there is going to uh bounce you so don't do that i'm glad we both brought our spore coats to the club i mean after all they're glow in the dark it'll look pretty cool with all the lights going everywhere okay so maybe they won't kick you out because their spore coats are so cool that they're gonna let us in yeah okay ben you try it you try, try it first it. all right all right i'll go over there i just tried the most car no you can't go in here <laughs> flat out denied but it glows in the dark. You didn't show him that it glows in the dark. You gotta show him, Ben. Go show him that it glows in the dark. Round two. I will go show him that it glows in the dark. And I'll tell him it's 3D printed. Maybe this will work. Oh, that'll work. Okay. I'll be back in a second. <laughs> <laughs> it's smart out. It's 3D printed. It's not cool enough. You can't come in. You're still a silly scientist. <laughs> <laughs> Christina, I've, I've tried everything. Maybe we can go uh, elevate something. We've tried everything in the natural world, even doing polymers. We can go uh, supernatural. No, that's terrible. No, go up. Uh, here's what I'm going to do. Okay, so one of the guys on my favorite show, you know, that supernatural show, he's so hot. He's so hot. I'm going to go tell the bouncer that he reminds me. I'm going to hide the spore coat and I'm going to go tell him how much... He reminds me of my favorite actor on Supernatural and how hot he is. Okay, this is a smart plan. All right, ready to go over there together? 
Oh, you're coming? I don't, I don't know how that's going to go. I mean, you go. can go by yourself. I understand. Oh, well, no. I mean, we both want to go in. So, okay, come on. Come on. Okay. I'll, I'll carry you. Come on. Uh, hey, can you show me your ID, please? Um, no, I don't need to show you my ID. Uh, I just need to tell you how incredibly hot you look because you look just like that actor on Supernatural. He was on there for a million seasons. He's just got a beautiful jawline, and you look just like him. And I just think that's amazing. Oh, thank you very much. I I watch Supernatural all the time. It's my favorite show. Oh, my God. I watched the whole series. I've seen every single one. Do you remember that one where there were fungal spores? Oh, that's my favorite one. The, they ate the guy's brain? Wasn't that cool? Oh, now I understand the spore coat and how cool it is. Okay, yeah, it's really cool. You should, um, yeah, totally. I I can go buy you a drink. You want to come? I'll buy you a drink. Absolutely. I'm going to quit my job right now just to be <laughs> able to talk about spores and spore coats. Okay, that, that's fabulous. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad. All right, okay. let's go in. <laughs> And scene. <laughs> okay, I am telling you that um, if if <laughs> if that ever were to happen to me again, I would leave the room. I am okay. I have to tell you something. In order to graduate from college, I had one class left. I had one class, so and I had to take it over the summer, and it was the only class that would allow me to graduate. It was an acting class. And I almost decided <laughs> that I really didn't need a bachelor's degree. <laughs> I would do anything to not have to take this class. <laughs> that I would like delay my entire existence as a human to avoid anything, anything that had to do with acting or improvisational game playing or anything like that. Just saying. <clears throat> so that was yeah you're pushing uh -huh. your boundaries that's oh, excellent God. yeah and this whole thing now this whole like oh um taking improv classes to help people talk about their thesis and their their extemporaneous talking about research and all this stuff i would just i would just leave graduate school i would just be like <laughs> oh my god if they're gonna make me do that i am so out of here i am just i just have accepted my failings in the um, improv arena. Yeah. I do hate to tell you this, Christina. Did you know every single answer in every question that I was going to ask you today? No, it's all improv. Yeah, I know, but it's not the same thing. Yeah, it's, true. it's not the same thing. It's a, it's a completely different part of the brain. It's a completely different performance art. I, I don't, mm. Well, don't worry. I'm this not. is only going to be on the internet for anyone to ever <laughs> capture forever and the rest of time. So I know. And, and I've just come to accept that that is my lot in life. You did it. Proud okay. of you all the way through. Gee, um, thanks, Ben. <laughs> yeah. Christina, it was a blast to have you on here. Um, I was really looking forward to talking to a fungal pathologist and it was even more fun than I thought it would be. <laughs> more fungal. Yes. Than you thought it would be. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And uh, at the end of this, uh, I hope you had fun. And, you know, my, your opinion means a lot. So I hope you think I was a fun guy, too. 
Ah, you were such a fun guy. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, anytime I can come talk about the coolness of science and fungi, I am on board. Thanks for listening to Deeper Than Data. I definitely can feel the energy and passion that Christina brings to science, and it's inspiring to know people like her exist. There's a chance Christina will be wandering the blocks at the Science on the Square event on October 22nd. So come on down and say hello to us, and you might even catch Christina. More details about the Wisconsin Science Fest are on the website in the show notes. Until next time, be well and try to be a funged people. Deeper Than Data was produced and created by me, Ben Rush, marketing by Jevin Lorty, branding by Lauren Trader, and editing by Julian Epp. Oh, I hate pizza. I don't like pizza. Oh, I hate pizza. Oh, I hate pizza. Oh, I hate pizza. I don't like pizza. I don't get it either.